there's a product in your bathroom that's probably killing your entire family. We'll tell you at 10. You're listening to Well Made. I'm your host, Stefan Ango, co-founder of Lumi. This week, we're talking to Craig Elbert. He's the entrepreneur behind Care Of, which is a new startup that provides personalized daily vitamins. It's a small vitamin packet that's put together for you based on your needs and shipped directly to your home. Craig was one of the first employees at Bonobos. You know them for their men's fashion sold online, e-commerce, one of the first sort of online stores in this new generation that we like to talk about. And as one of the first employees, he went on to lead the marketing team and learned a lot there. So we talk about his experience selling products through e-commerce and how he went about developing the concept for this new vitamin company. Enjoy. Craig, Craig Elbert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk today. So for those who don't know, can you give a quick description of what Care-of is? Yeah, Care-of is a direct-to-consumer, digitally native brand that is built around personalized vitamins and supplements. So the way it works, you come to our site, you tell us a little bit about your goals, your diet, your lifestyle, and then based on research that we've worked with, Academics at Harvard and Tufts will give you recommendations of vitamins and supplements that are right for you, and then we'll ship those to you every month in a daily personalized pouch, all direct to consumer, you know, being very thoughtful on the branding and the experience. I noticed that you threw in digitally native right there from the start, which is a phrase that we've been talking a lot about uh, over the past few months here on the show. Is, is that making sense? Is that resonating with people when you say that? I'm curious how widespread that term has become. It's a great question. Um, it's definitely within the circles of the startup world within New York here. People definitely are familiar with it. I mean, I think it was referenced on your guy's show a couple times ago. You know, I worked with Andy Dunn at Bonobos, and he had a, a medium post on digitally native vertical brands and has has definitely been pushing that term. Uh, so so I've heard it a lot, but I don't know how familiar it is out there. And so usually we... Can you just describe what that means and, and why you're excited about that avenue? Yeah. So the vertical brand part is going direct to consumer where you have the product uh, and you're going straight to the consumer. And that's, you know, like specialty retailers in the past, like a Gap or a J Crew have been vertically integrated um, in that they're not selling through a wholesale What's new right now is the digitally native piece of it, is actually being able to go directly to the consumer with a digitally native brand. And that means that it's built as you know a digital brand first, architected with the digital e-commerce experience as the core native experience, which you then build around. So for instance, at Bonobos, we were a digitally native vertical brand. It all started with a direct-to-consumer site where we were selling uh, men's pants initially, then eventually men's clothing. And as we evolved, then we also opened up our own retail, which were called guide shops, but those all drew on the digital brand first and were architected with e-commerce in mind. Uh, so I think the whole idea of a digitally native brand is direct consumer, but thinking about the online experience first and architecting the brand with that in mind. And so... It makes sense to me uh, that that vitamins is definitely a, a big market that doesn't seem to have maybe a clear direction. I, there there aren't any like big leaders in that area yet when it comes to the digitally native part. What attracted you to it on a personal level? 
Yeah, I mean, personally, I had an experience of just going to shop for vitamins and supplements. You know, I was running marketing at Bonobos and I went to a doctor. He said I was vitamin D deficient and I was on the way to go pick up some vitamin D and I was talking to my wife and she was pregnant at the time and she asked, can you get me some prenatal vitamins? So I go into the vitamin store and it's just a miserable experience where I couldn't tell what was the difference in all the different vitamin Ds what prenatal was the right one. There was a big sign outside. You know, the, the store was proud of having 3,500 products inside. But when it came to the user experience, it was a teenage store clerk who was getting paid a commission and was not useful at all. He would was literally reading off of the back of the bottles to tell me what the difference is. And that, that was not useful. And for me, I was coming from Bonobos where we thought about how can technology and direct consumer brands make a better experience. And this felt like a clear area where uh, you could create a better experience, you could create a better brand. And then as I started thinking about it more, it's a product that has low shipping costs, lends itself well to subscription. Content marketing can be very advantageous in this category. Felt like one that was very much ripe for a digitally native brand. Uh, you also just have stagnant incumbents who are not very savvy when it comes to their online presence. And it, again, just felt like a, an opportunity and one where, from a personal aspect, it was just a fascinating category the more that I dug into it. Yeah. Um, and you guys launched in November, is that correct? Uh, we launched in November. So my co-founder, Akash Shah, and I, we spent about a year doing research on a category, building a team, building a product, actually doing a, a beta site that we ran over the summer. So we worked on it for a full year before actually launching mid-November 2016. So it's been, at this point, three, four months of actually people out there in the public using it? Exactly, yes. And it's been great. The reception has been really overwhelming to the extent that actually we're now struggling with the operations and making sure that we're keeping up on fulfillment and customer service inquiries. And I think when thinking about building a brand, we were really focused on making sure that we started organically and authentically with press and with influencers when we launched it, rather than just going a pure paid acquisitions, just start with a bunch of Facebook ads. Um, and the press reception has been really strong. I mean, we're about 75 days in, and we've had over 50 press hits wow. across, you know, women's lifestyle like uh, Into the Gloss or Nylon Magazine to men's lifestyle like Gear Patrol or Uncrate to health and wellness like Mind Body Green and Well and Good. Uh, we're, we're seeing really strong resonance across a number of demographics, which is really exciting. Did you use a PR company to do that? Like, how did you approach actually getting the word out as far as the press is concerned? Yeah, uh, we, we did work with press agency here in, in New York, a firm called La Force that I had previously worked with at Bonobos, um, and they've been fantastic. Um, I also do think a lot of it when launching a new business and a new brand is making sure that you know your narrative down pat and, and testing that out there. And, and so we, we spent a lot of time thinking through the story and working with our PR team to make sure that we were connecting with the different press outlets. Yeah. Is there anything that that you you learned in the past three or four months that really surprised you that you maybe didn't expect and and now that you have some real users are trying to adjust for? Yeah, this was actually during the beta, which I mentioned we ran over the summer. We learned that you know typically when building a user experience, 
you want it to be super efficient and as fast as possible. And so we had a short version of this quiz that we give folks before giving the recommendation. And people said that that didn't actually feel personal enough. I want to share more information. Um, and so we continued to add questions and ensure that they tied to different recommendations. But it was, you know, interesting that people wanted to tell us more. They wanted to make sure that there were enough questions. We see, you know, the the time on site is basically two times the time on site that we saw at Bonobos. The quiz itself takes people four to five minutes to get through, yet very few people actually drop off once they start taking it because they want to see their recommendation. So that was one that was counterintuitive to me. Um, the other one that happened with launch was we'd initially built the brand thinking about maybe it would skew a bit more female because the category, you know, purchasers tend to skew a bit more female. And we found that it was actually, we're at an even split 50-50 between men and women, which is exciting for us, um, but also something that we didn't necessarily anticipate. Yeah, what you said about the onboarding is really fascinating because, you know, you would expect that ideally if you can reduce the number of steps to sign up, that would be good. But I, I have taken the quiz it's like it's like 40 steps or yes, something, <laughs> which is great, but it is a fascinating thing. And I wonder how you can like generalize that learning. Like when is it okay to put your user through that? When do they want that? What is it that they're looking for? And why did it make sense in that particular case? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that we pinpointed, one of which is People are looking for a personalized recommendation and it doesn't feel credible if you only do that off of a few questions. You know, if we just ask a few questions, we would essentially be no better than a men's multivitamin marketed to men 50 plus. To be credible around the personalization, we need to know enough information. I also think that there is something people like to think about themselves and share about themselves, you know. BuzzFeed obviously does this well with their quizzes where you take a quiz to find out what kind of character on Real Housewives or whatever you are. You know, people like sharing about themselves and, and you know, that I think helps. I also do think there's this idea of a curiosity gap, which I think it's in Made to Stick is where I read this, but that basically once you start doing something and you, you're curious what's on the other side, that curiosity uh, is a strong motivator. Um, and so I think keeping that in mind also also helps there. If you think about like what you said of normally you want few steps to check out, you know, that part is true. We definitely want our checkout to be streamlined because there's no curiosity gap. There's no sharing anything that's interesting about yourself. It's purely functional and it's a nuisance. So you want that streamlined, but when there's something curious and interactive, that's sharing about yourself, I think you have the ability to turn that into a conversation and in that way engage with folks and make something more delightful and and feel just more human. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea of curiosity as kind of a measure of that. I laugh always when people say that, you know, people have a low attention span these days, but I'm completely okay binge watching like, you know, 12 episodes of something in one day, you know, and, and I think it's the same reason that you're describing it's i want to find out what happens and exactly that's the curiosity exactly like the best example of the curiosity gaps the really sort of cheesy ones are when you're watching a teaser for a news program that's about to start and they're like 
there's a product in your bathroom that's probably killing your entire family. We'll tell you at 10. And then you're like, oh, man, now I got I to gotta stay and see <laughs> what that is. The weather. Even though I'm really annoyed, I still I, I can't help it. I want to know. Um, so I do think that when building you know, some digital experiences, obviously you don't want it to be annoying like that. Um, but that's a core motivator with content. That's a motivator in Netflix binge watching. That's a motivator in, you know, mystery movies where you want to stay to the end. I think there's a fun challenge in can you build that into a digital product? So what is the output on your side of this questionnaire? Uh, what do you do that is actually personal once you have all that information? Yeah. So what we do is we worked, as I mentioned, with a, our scientific advisory board, which has academics from Harvard and Tufts, but also naturopaths and integrative doctors who are practicing. We created a rule set. So we went through the research that's out there and we figured out, okay, for instance, if you told us you're concerned about heart health, there's a number of things that you could be taking for heart health, but it depends on what is your specific goal. Are you concerned about triglycerides or cholesterol? Are you eating enough fish in your diet? Because if you're not eating fish, then maybe a first recommendation could be fish oil. If you actually had a heart attack, which is not something we can actually ask on the site right now for regulatory reasons, but if you'd had a heart attack, then coenzyme 10, CoQ10, can be good because uh, statins tend to reduce that enzyme in your body. If you're low on energy, and you're a vegan or vegetarian, then B12 might be the first thing that we recommend to you because B12 is only naturally found in animal products, but it also helps create energy. Whereas if you're not a vegetarian or vegan, then we might recommend something like rhodiola rosea, which is an herb from the Altai Mountains, which has a little bit of research, less than vitamins, but a little bit of research towards helping combat fatigue and stressful situations. So we use all that information that we get to be able to tailor the recommendation and also to be able to tailor the language of that recommendation so it's it's personal to you. Um, and we think that that creates overall a better experience than uh, a basic multivitamin because a basic multivitamin tends to be kind of an average of everything and realistically probably doesn't have enough of the things that you really do need and maybe you know has too much of a bunch of stuff that you don't need and so we want to create something that's that's more personal and and then also you know why you're taking something because we give you the logic behind the recommendation well all of it makes sense to me and one thing that i wonder about is how you the customers because anybody <laughs> who's looking at pills is probably looking at it from a perspective where there's all these questions that come about, like the purity of the ingredients. And I always remember this study that they did about all these brands like Advil that are basically, you know, patenting things like ibuprofen. Now we're not in the realm of vitamins, but we're still in the realm of supplements. You know, one of the reasons people patent things like chemicals like ibuprofen is that so they can get their brand name out there as soon as possible so that people associate Advil with this painkiller when in fact now that the patent has expired the no name stuff is like exactly the same and there's no reason for you to buy the fancy stuff um, because it's literally the same chemical so how do you deal with those things that you know people who are not as informed about the science behind it or are questioning this online startup thing that's only been around for a couple months when you have to answer these questions about I don't know. Yeah, I guess trust is the best answer. Yeah, trust is key in anything health related um, and definitely particularly what we're doing. 
one major thing is transparency, is being able to show where are the ingredients coming from, why are they in there, being able to show that we've sourced naturally versus chemical versions that tend to be cheaper, and then being able to tell the story of why a high-quality version of, say, magnesium uh, is, is better than something that's chemically generated in a lab that your body might not naturally be able to absorb. Um, and to do that, that's where we need to make sure we have experts that we're working with. So it's doctors on the science side, but then also on our sourcing side, we have a supply chain team that has 25 years of experience at a premium brand called New Chapter uh, that, that we have a lot of admiration for, for the, the quality of ingredients that they have. You know, bringing Bob and Sheila aboard to our team as our sourcing team, what they allow us to do is they have a lot of experience out there and we can say, okay, you know, there's a lot of fish oil on the market but ours is going to be made from wild Alaskan salmon that's sourced in a sustainable manner, that is cold-pressed, uh, that is readily available and absorbable by your body. Whereas if you buy something off of this shelf at a, you know, a drugstore, it's probably cheap stuff that is sourced from Peruvian anchovies and sardines. You know, chemicals are added to it. It's put at a high heat. There was actually a whole frontline piece on this on PBS of just all the kind of weird stuff that can happen because of the lack of regulation over years in this industry. And so what we want to do is show, hey, we're the brand that can be trusted. We're going to show you what's going into your products. We're going to tell you why we've made the decisions we've made. Again, it's something where I think there is an inspiration taken from Everlane obviously did this in the clothing world of radical transparency on on how they're making their clothes and how there's fair labor used. Um, as a consumer myself and just knowing others, People want to know that they're getting high quality. They want to know that things are sourced in a way that comes with integrity, uh, comes with sustainability. And we have the ability to tell that story in a way that a lot of the existing incumbents can't tell because they've uh, created supply chains that are basically a race to the bottom in terms of price. But that means that they've foregone quality. In many ways, this category is more similar, I think, to food than it is to you know, pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals, you have patents. It's all sort of chemicals and synthetics. Whereas the category that we're working in, it is to supplement your nutrition. Um, and it's to act in the same way that food acts. And similar to food, it then matters where everything is sourced from and where quality is coming from and, and how it's sourced. Um, and so we want to be able to tell that story. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And you mentioned early on that you saw content marketing as being an important part of that. And I can definitely see just the level of information that's out there. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin looking for that kind of information. Exactly. I mean, I think that's why when I look at a competitor's product, they're selling in a brick and mortar experience and they have a four inch tall bottle or box to try to tell their entire story. That's why if you look at some of them, they're just jammed with text. It's overwhelming. I mean, you know, one of them, I, I counted how many words there were once and it would have taken somebody, you know, 10 minutes to read that entire bottle while in the store. And that's, you know, that's clearly not happening. And that's not the best user experience for how to digest that information. Online, you have this platform to be able to educate, uh, to be able to be interactive, to be able to have it dynamic. And that allows for the transparency, that allows for the storytelling, that allows for it to feel personalized. Again, in many ways, these are the reasons that I think this, this category and longer term, just personalized health in general, works better with a digital, you know, in a digital era. It's not just 
the Warby Parker of vitamins, which would just be like, okay, we were just selling vitamins direct to consumer and we have a brand and it's, you know, a, a lower price point. For us, it's about how do we actually use technology in a category that's confusing and use technology to help sort out the signal from that noise uh, in a way that is different from eyeglasses or razors or clothing. And so that that's the piece that's fascinating to me that I think is a real opportunity in, in this category. So I imagine you learned a lot about uh, how to approach this from your time at Bonobos. I'm curious if you can share a little bit about your journey there, you know, how you first started there. You were one of the first employees there, if I'm not mistaken, and stayed there for a few years. I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your background yeah. at Bonobos. Yeah, I mean, I joined Bonobos in 2009 when there was about 10 people there. Um, I initially joined and headed up marketing and analytics, which I ran for about three and a half years. And then transitioned over to run marketing for three and a half years after that. So a total of six and a half to seven years at Bonobos had the fun of watching that company grow from, like I said, about 10 people when I started to over 250 when I left. Um, tremendous growth on the revenue side and ultimately just building a high growth, profitable business. Um, you know, I think there was a lot that I learned there, from, both from Andy Dunn, who was the co-founder and is the CEO, and also early on Brian Spaley, who was the other co-founder who also went on to be the founder and CEO of Trunk Club. We focused a lot on storytelling, creating something that's delightful for a customer. Like how do you focus on the customer, focus on things like net promoter score as a metric that we hadn't, you know, hadn't been familiar with before. But that's one that essentially gauges how likely people are to recommend a brand to their friend. And those are the types of things to focus on to drive a business that people love rather than immediately on day zero focusing on, is it profitable? It's like, okay, can we actually build a product that people love that they want to tell their friends about? It's also about building a company with strong culture. Um, it was something that we were always focused on at Bonobos, and I give Andy a lot of credit for thinking early on about what are the core values of the company? How do we think that those should really shape who we hire into this organization? They should shape who gets promoted. They should shape how we make decisions. And I think that was a key part that I took away from Bonobos. A, a number of lessons, really, um, but a lot of it was just seeing how do you build something that people love? Um, how do you use the power of a direct-to-consumer brand to really create a product and a brand that resonates. Yeah, I can definitely see how having a strong internal code, you know, reflects back to how you explain the company, which then helps your recruiting uh, in the sense that then people come to the company knowing sort of what the company looks like on the inside. Oh, I, just out of curiosity, what were those, those values at Bonobos? Yeah, uh, so one of them was positive energy, which sort of sounds silly because it's like, oh, of course you want people with positive energy. But that was one where we'd actually found in the fashion industry, you often have people who can be negative or kind of poo-poo or overly cynical at the stage that we were. And as a brand we were, we wanted to be positive. The second is self-awareness, which is just being able to know, you know, a lot of that's about humility. When you're starting a, a business and starting a brand and you have a small team, no one's going to be able to be a master of everything, but we're all going to have to cover a lot of ground. And so I think there needs to be a certain humility of knowing where your strengths are and where you can use help. 
Um, another is just empathy. So being able to be empathetic towards your peers and also empathetic towards the customer um, is is a big one. Then you have judgment, which again sounds like an obvious one, but I think good judgment is important when you have a small team. Everyone is going to be making decisions, and so you you don't have people who are just kind of like the you know, in the background, getting stuff done. Everybody is making decisions and needs to have good judgment. And then the last one is intellectual honesty. Uh, intellectual honesty is be able to have an opinion uh, or, or have a point of view that says, you know, like, I think this is the answer. But then if you're shown data, you're able to say, actually, I think I was wrong. Again, it ties into humility, but it also ties into the importance of data. That's interesting. And so did you bring those over to care of or do you guys have a different set of values? It's actually an exercise that we're going through right now. Um, and I think there are certain ones that definitely resonate. You know, I think the intellectual honesty is an important one. Empathy, really the first dozen employees shaped those values. And so it's an exercise that we're going through that we haven't landed on our specific values. It's one where I could have done the exercise prior to you know, launching the company when it was just myself and Akash, my co-founder. But I think the reality is that the culture stems from the founders, but it also stems from the early employees. During the first and sort of second three years of your time at Bonobos, can you sort of break down a little bit about what your responsibilities were? Yeah. I mean, my first responsibility when I started was, I remember Brian Spaley telling me that my job was to not let us run out of cash. Hmm. You know, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, realistically, Andy and also Brian were doing the fundraising, um, but I was assisting on that and making sure that I was managing the budget and watching the cash and thinking about investments and capital allocation. But along with that was analytics. Um, early on, we didn't have a marketing or a merchandising team, and so I was responsible for a lot of the analytics, which led to. Eventually, then making Facebook ads myself in you know 2010, prior to kind of our first venture capital raise, setting up Facebook ads, figuring out customer acquisition cost, and then you know from there helping project out customer lifetime value. So the that that basic equation of a direct consumer e-commerce business and so many businesses is just what's your customer lifetime value versus your customer acquisition cost. And that's what, you know, the analytics side of things were for me. And that was ultimately what opened the door for me to be able to then shift over to the marketing side was after a while, so much of the analytics we were doing were focused on marketing, focused on which channels were working, what were the different payback windows by channel, and using that to to shift over about three years in, three and a half years into to marketing, and specifically initially focusing on the performance marketing. But while I was leading marketing, I was overseeing performance marketing, but also brand marketing, PR, and at certain points, graphic design. And what was great was being able to think about not just the quant side of things, which are kind of like looking at the numbers and directly making investments, but broadening that to think about storytelling. How do we tell a narrative that connects? How do we have an aesthetic that is long-term and thinking about the power of creative to build a long-term brand? So over time, yeah, it was it was overseeing all of the marketing and, and thinking about that balance between brand marketing and aesthetics along with performance marketing and driving growth. Can you give some some specific examples of the the actual strategies that you used in each of those buckets? Yeah, so one of the overlaps I would say 
between analytics and marketing was looking at where are we acquiring good customers and how is that driving the business? And so this was looking across all of the customers that we had and then figuring out what percentage of the business they were driving. And this was a bit based on some work that uh, Professor Fader at Wharton does around customer centricity is this idea that good customers really drive the business. And, you know, it's that classic Pareto rule where it's supposed to be, you know, 20% of the customers drive 80% of the business. For us, when we dug in, it was something more like 30% of the customers drove 75% of the business. But what we saw was, you know, that analytics side was that realization of, okay, we're treating every, you know, we're basically saying we're going out to acquire a bunch of customers, but all customers are not the same in the long term. And so early on, you know, in maybe 2011 or so when Groupon and Living Social, there were all these daily deal sites, they were great for acquiring a number of customers. They would, you know, we could get thousands of customers in a day from the daily deals, but we realized that they were not actually driving the business. That analysis around where do we get good customers informed, let's not go through these daily deal channels. And then that eventually informed saying, let's take a look and say, where are we getting our good customers? And we saw there were a couple of channels, specifically our guide shop, which is our brick and mortar stores, and our catalog were disproportionately driving stronger customers in terms of people who were spending more, who were coming back more frequently. And so that helped justify a decision to grow those channels. Um, So that's one analysis. I think another one that I might highlight is thinking through how do you find the right balance between brand and performance marketing? A performance marketer is, is looking at all these metrics, trying to acquire customers for cheap. And what can wind up happening is they can focus on, say, giving out a lot of coupon codes or kind of creating potentially spammy looking things with large like click here buttons. You know, in the case of Bonobos, if we're creating a premium lifestyle brand, you do not want to have that juxtaposed with like these entry points that just don't look good and aren't visually appealing. And so long term, it was this push towards how do we find performance channels um, that also are allowing us to show off the photography, allowing us to show off the brand, the tone, the voice that aren't just about click here to get some sort of deal. So what was an example of that, an actual channel that worked well for you? Yeah, that, that was, again, catalog was one that was good because catalog, we can quantify the direct response from it and see a meaningful lift to the business. At the same time, you have the ability to do storytelling with a lot of visuals. So we would you know, have photo shoots that were not cheap, but that you then get those visuals out there. You get that brand feel and the consumer's having a different experience when they're flipping through a catalog than they are when they're clicking on a Facebook ad, which granted early on Facebook ads were, were very large for us, but it's a different experience that can be more brand elevating. So in, in this case, you mean literally sending out a printed catalog and this, how did you get the addresses of the people that you sent it to? Yeah, there's companies out there that have databases of consumer purchasing. And so they would do their modeling and they'd say, okay, you know, maybe a Bonobos, this is sort of like an example, if not, this is oversimplifying it, but they'd say, here's a person, you know, like a Bonobos customer maybe shops at J. Crew and Apple and Starbucks. Okay, we're going to go find out people who have shopped at those brands, but who have not shopped at Bonobos, and then we'll provide that address to you and you can mail them a catalog. So it's data modeling off of consumer purchase behavior. You, you know, pay to be able to send those folks a catalog. 
And were you tracking their behavior through a, a specific URL, or how did you know then that they became a, a customer? Yeah, I mean, that's where a direct-to-consumer business is is nice because you know the address that you shipped a catalog to and you know the address you shipped a box to. You know, it takes some database management because those addresses might not initially look exactly the same the way they're typed, but you clean that up and you can tell how many people received a catalog, uh, also made a purchase. I think that that is a strategy that most people probably who come from the digitally native side don't think about. Similar to the guide shops, I think we had a little bit of a conversation about this with Richie a couple of weeks ago on the podcast where I think it became a, a realization among the digitally native companies that it wasn't wrong to do something in the physical world, even though part of the brand was being online first. I wonder if you can walk us through what that decision was like uh, when you guys decided to launch the guide shops. Yeah, definitely credit to Andy at Bonobos. Uh, you know, it was something that he pushed for intuitively because despite the fact that Bonobos had launched online prior to that, you know, while they were in business school at Stanford, so many of the first pairs of Bonobos were actually sold in a parking lot out of the back of the, you know, out of their cars. And then they would also do these trunk shows across the country and they they saw the power of selling in person. So Andy, I think, always had that in the back of his mind. And we had a showroom in New York uh, where people could come in and try things on. And, and we saw that in particular with things like suits and dress shirts, there was a desire for people to want to touch and feel it, to try it on, to know the fit prior to making the purchase. Um, I think what's interesting about the guide shop is, and this goes back to what does it mean to be digitally native, is rather than just opening up a store like a normal brick and mortar store, we thought about what are the experiences that people are going to a store for and what is the role that online played. And really what's great about the online world is you have this massive selection. So for Bonobos, we had you know 35 different waist inseam combinations across four different fits, across 30 different colors, and that's just the Wash Chino program alone. So it's this massive selection that you think about something like Amazon has massive selection. But you can't offer that in a brick-and-mortar store because stocking all that inventory is just not economically feasible from a working capital standpoint. But when you think about it, why are people going into the store? People are going in there because they want to ensure that it fits. They want to be able to touch and feel it. And other than sort of a rare circumstance where someone is you know, buying an outfit that they need for that night – Generally, people aren't buying for something that they're going to wear out of the store. And so we realized that there was an ability to have them come in, give them really high-touch service, uh, allow them to have a one-on-one -on -one appointment. You know, we get to know them. They get to have a beer. They get to hang out. Uh, a real bond is created uh, over the brand. And then they leave and they don't have to carry shopping bags around. Instead, it shows up conveniently, you know, one or two days after that, they receive their order in the mail um, and they'll know, you know, they'll be getting something that's specific for them. So I think the key learning for me that I also bring to care of on this front is physical retail is important. You know, it's 90% or it's probably not 90% anymore, but probably 85 or 80% of purchases still happen in the physical world versus the digital world. So it is important 
to have a presence there. If you don't, you're just sort of being arrogant that everybody purchases online, which isn't the case. But I think the way to do it is think about, okay, why are people making purchases in person? What are the reasons and how do we adjust to that while also taking the best parts of an online component to be able to to create the right experience that again is architected with e-commerce and a digital brand at the at the center of that ecosystem. I'm curious what that would look like for Care Of. <laughs> I'm sure you've been thinking about it. I don't know if it's something you want to share. I'm curious too. Um, you know, it's one where realistically we won't do it in the first 12 months, and we're going to learn a lot from our consumers. One possibility is uh, a practitioners network where you actually work with doctors and provide them the tools, and that's your physical presence. I think another opportunity possibly is having small footprints of nutritionists where people can meet with a nutritionist or a registered dietitian. Um, They can go in depth and possibly down the line if they want, provide blood samples, provide uh, more quantified self-information, and then we'll be able to use that and input it into the system and then ship it out to them. Um, And it's even possible that it's something more of a kiosk or something where you have a physical presence out there against small footprint. But I do think the key part for me is, is thinking about still consolidating inventory at a national level, aggregating that inventory so it's not dispersed across the country, but creating the, you know, the in-person experience should feel very personal. Ultimately, like to me, when I talk about how care of is a personalized experience, the key components of that are using technology in a smart way and then using human empathy and using humans to, to make it feel personal. So, so those two always need to work together. And so I think the offline component has to have a combination of those two, and it probably leans a, a little bit more towards um, human empathy. Maybe we can end on this, on this last question. I'm sure that you have, you know, it's only been a few months since you launched. I'm curious, what are the questions that you still have about care of the hypotheses that you're testing the things that you're measuring at the moment that you you don't know how it's going to turn out yet yeah there's so many since it's so early but one is definitely the best ways to spark an ongoing conversation with our consumers in a way that is is welcomed like how do we help people build healthy habits while also not being annoying so you know, when we think about down the line building an app, we help people with compliance by allowing them to track when they're taking their vitamins and supplements and rewarding that. Or is there a certain segment of folks who find that annoying and they don't want you know someone watching over them? Uh, so it's finding that balance there. Uh, it's also figuring out how do we continue to work on closing the feedback loop for vitamins and supplements? Because that's definitely one of the biggest challenges of the categories. Some of them like you know, calcium for bone health, like that's a long-term play that you're not necessarily going to feel the difference with immediately. So how do we give someone the the feedback that they're doing something well? Um, and then for some of the shorter-term ones, like probiotics for digestion, how do we help them to, you know, tell if it's working and if it's not working, help them find something that could be working for them? So I think the feedback loop is is definitely one that I'm thinking about a lot. And just generally the the post-purchase experience. How do we continue to be delightful, continue to stay in a conversation with the customers, continue to be helpful? Awesome. Well, if people want to try the questionnaire that we were talking about and explore uh, what Care Of is all about, they can go to takecareof.com. 
And is there anything else that you want to point people towards? Uh, no, yeah, I think if they go to takecareof.com, that would be fantastic. And even happy to provide a code they could use. We can make it up on the spot. What do you think the right code is for your users? Um, well made. <laughs> How about that? All right. So if they use well made, they will get two weeks off their first care of purchase. Oh, that's very exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Craig. I've really enjoyed talking to you and uh, I'm really curious to see how it goes. We'll have to check in with you in, in a year or so. Yes. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.